Turn your copy of God's Word to the 16th chapter of the fourth gospel, the Johannine Gospel, John chapter 16, for a sermon entitled, Two Gifts. What is the greatest gift ever? Let me throw out a few possibilities of great gifts in history, and you might pick one from that list. How about the Statue of Liberty? I think that was a pretty significant gift, a gift from France to the United States. The statue was built overseas and shipped to the United States in pieces. And now, before you plan to give anyone a gift like that, make sure they clear out some yard space before the boats arrive. They might need a little time to get ready. We've all heard of the white elephant gift. No, I mean the real white elephant gift. King Manuel of Portugal gave a white elephant to Pope Leo X in 1514, a big white pachyderm. The Pope was so enamored with a pachyderm named Hanno that he commissioned Raphael to paint a portrait of the pachyderm. Now, the elephant had, no elephant had been seen in Italy for centuries. People went mad. They rushed the crowd. They stampeded to get a glimpse at this almost mythological beast, the white elephant. He was the Pope's favorite pet. Now, that's quite a gift when somebody gives you a real white elephant. Or how about 1947? Truman received a two-lane bowling alley to be installed at the White House. It's a birthday gift, never mind that Truman had not bowled since he was 19 years of age and he preferred poker over bowling, but the staff really seemed to like the gift. On the first ball down the alley, Truman took down seven pins, some beginner's luck there. That was quite a gift. Or ladies, how about Liz Taylor? From one of her husbands, from Richard Burton, she received a, are you ready? I'd never heard of such a thing. Are you ready? 69 carat diamond. 69, don't look on your finger, you'll be disappointed. 69 carat diamond, pear-shaped, given in 1969. It was the first diamond ever publicly sold for seven figures, but it did prove to be a good investment. They paid about a million for it, and 10 years later, 1978, it sold, was auctioned off for $5 million. I'm happy to say that the proceeds were used to build a hospital in Botswana. Liz Taylor said, they really needed a hospital, and Lord knows I don't need another ring. So that worked out good for everybody. Then sometimes there are duplicitous gifts, gifts that come with strings attached. Maybe you've gotten a gift like that. 1945, the Young Pioneer Organization of the Soviet Union gave to Averill Harriman, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, gave him a hand-carved version of the great seal of the United States, the eagle and all. It, it was a ruse. It was 1952, all the way from 1945, not until 1952, they found out that the Russians had planted a bug in the carving. In fact, Leon Theremin had designed a bug that required no power supply and didn't give off any signal. It was quite technology all the way back in 1945. The Russians listened in on American affairs by this ruse of a gift. What's the best gift that you've personally ever received? 
one that literally changed your life. Bet it wasn't a sweater. Bet it wasn't another bottle of Old Spice. I bet it wasn't socks and underwear. I bet those don't claim the greatest gift ever. Was it a diamond engagement ring given to you by your husband? Or was it the time your daughter-in-law wrapped up a birthday present and a little t-shirt was in there that said, going to be a grandma. Happy birthday. Twins are on the way. Now that would be a great gift, wouldn't it? Maybe someone in your family has been so sacrificial as to give you a kidney, to give you the gift of life. What kind of gift would that be for someone to be that generous? I don't know what the greatest gift you've ever received is, but I do know in our passage today that Jesus talks about two gifts that he gives his followers. This section in John 16 goes from 16 to 33 is divided into two nine verse segments. The first one is Jesus's gift of joy in the midst of depression. Jesus's gift of joy in the midst of depression, verses 16 through 24. Did you see the story this week about the rubber duck that mysteriously showed up in the main harbor? with the word joy written across the duck's chest. The appearance of the rubber duck, no, I'm not talking about a tiny rubber duck, I'm talking about a 25 foot tall rubber duck showed up with the word joy. Look at that little boat, uh, the duck could run over the boat. I'd be going the other way if that bu du duck was headed my way. Well, it's become a whimsical whodunit. It's defied all the sleuths so far. No one knows who owns a duck, this duck, of joy. This giant yellow waterfowl emblazoned with the word joy appeared in the Belfast Harbor. The harbor master, Catherine Given, says the, to the Bangor Daily News, well, it doesn't pose any navigational hazards. We kind of like it. We're not anxious to shoo it away. Everybody loves joy and a lot of people just want to keep it here. The duck has become over the weekend a social media star. People in Jesus' day and people now want the sudden appearance of joy. But joy has never made a more powerful appearance than the joy described right here in John chapter 16. So verses 16 through 24, Jesus' gift of joy in depression. Look at verse 16. A little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, this is kind of a quizzical comment. Jesus is telling his followers, you won't see me, then you will see me. And always, it's repeated three times in four verses, almost becomes awkward. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Look at verse 17. A little while, you'll not see me again. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Well, look at verse 19. A little while you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. You won't see me for a little while, and then a little while you will. A clear reference to the death and burial, and then three-day sudden resurrection appearance of Jesus. You won't see me for a little while, but then a little while, three days to be exact, you will. Well, let me retranslate verses 20 through 23 this way. Truly, truly, I want to tell you something very important. 
you will be sobbing and crying, but the world will be rejoicing. You will be depressed, but your depression, your sorrow will be turned into joy. For example, when a woman is in labor, she is in pain, she is depressed because the hour of delivery has come. But when she gives birth to a child, she no longer remembers her anguish because of the thrill of having brought a human being into the world. So you're depressed now too, but I will see you again and your hearts will be thrilled with joy and no one will be able to take your joy from you. Indeed on that day, you will not even ask me any more questions. Now this formula, truly, truly, or maybe your translation says verily, verily, or your translation may say amen, amen. This formula, this introductory formula, only appears in John's gospel. So if you're ever in a contest, a Bible quiz, and it starts out truly, truly, you just shout out John. You'll get it right. Truly, truly, it comes from John. But interestingly enough, Jesus uses it in John's gospel when he's going to make a really important point. Truly, truly, this double formula. Listen up. I've got something I truly want to say to you. This hostile world which hates me will rejoice when I am crucified and you will be in sorrow when the world is rejoicing that your rabbi is hanging on the tree. You will be plunged into depression and despair and the whole world will be turned upside down. For these disciples, seeing their rabbi crucified, there was no more reason to live. Life would be aimless. They would be without a cause. They would be without their Christ. But then he says, in a little while, you will see me again. Your depression will be like that of a woman who goes into labor. She's in such anguish. She dreads a moment of delivery, but in the end of delivery, there is joy. At the end of the tomb, there's resurrection. Now, I've been in several rooms where women were in the throes of birth pangs, either during the birth of my own children or as a chaplain in the hospital. And Without getting too personal, let's just say women don't also always put their best face forward. It's not their best word sometimes in the middle of a, a contraction. One lady confesses that the worst thing she said was to her husband. It was their first child. The first one's always the worst. You don't know what to expect. She was in really bad back labor pains. And he was rubbing her back while she was having a contraction. And then he started complaining that his hands were getting tired, that his hands were starting to hurt. And she said something along these lines that her entire body hurt. She didn't care about his hands. And if he couldn't rub her back, he needed to get out of the room. That was her response. <laughs> Another soon-to-be mother said to her husband, get out of my face, you're using my oxygen. It's a running joke in the household. When someone gets too close, they'll say, get out of my face. You're using my oxygen. Or the lady who punched the nurse in the face. Not long after that, the doctor came in and tied her arms down and put a gas mask over her face. She awakened hours later, didn't realize she'd already delivered the child and everybody was already gone. And then there's the mother is somewhere in the middle of delivery, stood up in her bed and said, I'm going home, I'm not doing this, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> her mother patted her on the hand and said, honey, it doesn't work that way, it's, it's, too, it's too late now. But in the end, 
that cry, that long-awaited cry of a baby. And all sorrow fades and joy takes center stage. After Jesus is crucified, his disciples are in utter despair. Their Lord had been so wonderful and yet a total disappointment in the end. Given the cross, given the defeat of the rabbi, there could not have been a more ecstatic reunion in all of human history. The reunion between the disciples and their Lord, their rabbi, their death-defeating Lord. When the tomb is empty and Jesus walks in the room and says, Behold my scars. Your hearts, he says, look at verse 20, verse 22. We'll be thrilled with the joy and no one can take that joy away from you, and you won't even ask me any more questions. When you see that death cannot defeat your Lord, when you really begin to comprehend the plan and the power of God, when you get the meaning of life from this, the perplexing puzzle of human existence is answered, and all of the suffering of your life and all the deaths around you and all the hardship and all the loss and all the grief you've ever borne will now turn to grace. Jesus' life, his death and resurrection. My Lord, what a morning Easter must have been. Your sorrow, he says, look at the end of verse 20, your sorrow will be turned to joy. When God gives you the gift of joy, verse 23, you won't even ask me any more questions. All of us have a big list of questions we want to ask God or, or his son when we get to heaven, don't we? We put those away, and that question is always the same question for every one of us. We want to ask the question, why, don't we? Why this loss? Why this tragedy? Why this chronic illness? Why this surgery? Why, oh God, this death? Why, oh God, this divorce? Why, oh God, this injustice? Why, God, why? But when God gives you the gift of joy, the joy that no one can take away, when you see God, Jesus says, you won't even bother to ask your questions. It won't matter. The glory of the reunion and the kingdom of God, the reunion with the ones that you have known and loved, the reunion with your Lord will be answer enough. In verse 22, no one this time will be able to take your joy from you. I've been guilty of it in the past, and my guess is you have too, letting someone rob you of the joy of God's grace. Maybe someone's words discouraged you. At some point, when you really experience the joy that comes from having eternal salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, from not seeing him for a little while, then seeing him three days later, when you understand the power of the gift of eternal life, then no one can rob you of that joy. Are you a sinner this morning? We all are. He's a savior. Are you lost this morning? by television or live stream or in this room, he will find you. Are you broken this morning? He is a God who always makes whole. Are you hurting this morning? 
He's the bomb in Gilead. Is death creeping at your door? Have you been by the graveside with your family recently? He is the resurrection and the life. No one can ever rob God's children of their joy. This morning, if you're letting someone steal your resurrection joy, then you don't either, either don't understand who God is or don't understand what God has done for you. Well, there's a second gift. It's the gift of peace. Peace in the face of defeat. Verses 25 through 33. Peace in the face of defeat. Let's read those verses, 25 through 33. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I have come forth from the Father. I have come forth from the Father. I have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. And his disciples said, lo, now you're speaking plainly and, and not using a figure of speech. And now we know that you know all things and have no need of anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. And Jesus asked, do you believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. In me you have peace. The second gift from Jesus in this latter part of the 16th chapter of John's gospel is the gift of peace and the face of defeat. Here's an interesting introduction to this gift. Maybe you've noticed it before. The disciples have not prayed in Jesus' name before. And now he says, if you pray in my name, meaning if you pray in my mission, he says, you'll ask something in my name. I will not say to you that I will request of the Father. What does he mean by that? Verses 25 and 26. Jesus is saying that he's not going to, to the Father on behalf of the disciples. Why? The answer is in verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and you have believed that I have come forth from the Father. And then he says, I'm going back to the Father. One translator put it this way. On that day, you'll ask for something in prayer in my name. And I cannot honestly say that I will ask the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have come to love me and come to believe that I have come from God. Sometimes in the classic categories of theology, we've made the mistake of depicting God as cold and aloof and really only connecting to his people through the caring Christ. And nothing could be further from the truth. The Father loves you. It is because he loves you that he sent his Christ. John told us that in chapter 3. The Father loves you because you have believed that I have come from him. 
is the fact that Father loves all those who accept and love and trust His Son. The Father is so deeply pleased when we come to know Jesus, His Son. The reality is that God loves you more than God loves God's self. And thus, He gave His Son that we could have everlasting life. In verse 28, I want you to notice, this is a, a V-shaped theology. Notice what he says. There's two steps down. I have come from the Father. We begin the downstroke in the V. I have come into the world, the next downstroke to the V. And I am leaving the world again, the first upstroke of the V. And I'm going to be with the Father, the ascension, the last upstroke of the V. I have come down and I am going up. The only thing this V doesn't catch is his glorious return, returning for his church. I've come out from my Father and I've come into the world and I'm leaving the world. I'm being lifted up in the cross and then the resurrection, death, burial, ascension, the career of our Lord. And one verse here in verse 28, I'm going back to the Father. But before they get the good news of peace, there's the bad news. Anybody ever come up to you and say, I've got good news and bad news. What do you want first? Now, I don't know about you. I always say I want the bad news. I don't know what that says. You can analyze me. I always say, you know, punch me in the gut, and then we'll rejoice together. I don't want to go high and then low. I want to go low and then high. Maybe you, you like good news the best. Maybe you ask for the good news. But I'll say, okay, let's have the bad news and, and give it to me first. Well, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news comes first. Notice what he says. Behold, an hour is coming. The hour refers to the crucifixion and has already come. They're already on their way to the cross in John 16. And you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. And yet I will not be alone because the Father is with me. Do you really believe in me? Verse 31. Are you really willing to follow me? Jesus asks. The reality is when the authorities come, he knows they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane and the authorities will arrive and he will be arrested. He knows that as every, all four Gospels describe that his followers scattered. And even Peter who said, Lord, I will always be by your side, followed at only a great distance. Do you believe in me? The reality is you will desert me. Each of you will go back to your own home, he says. The hour is coming. In fact, it's already here. We're about to go to the garden. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Soon they're going to the garden. The authorities will arrest him, and the disciples will flee. And they will deny, as in Peter's case cursing, I never even knew him. I'm not one of his followers. Jesus knows the limits of their faith. The crucifixion will do them in. And so he's telling them, I am with you for a little while. I will be gone, and a little while you will see me again. A little while I will be gone, and yet the sorrow will be turned to joy and the power of my resurrection. And no one, when you're called back together, will be able to take that joy from you. There's only one hero in the crucifixion story. Now, Judas isn't the hero, clearly. Peter isn't the hero. He curses and denies. 
In fact, everyone, Matthew tells us, every single disciple left him and fled. The only hero is Jesus himself. And then he gives them the great gift in verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, shalom, and the world. Why are we surprised? We're in the middle of it right now. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Translated, I have conquered the powers of darkness in my resurrection. This morning, don't be too upset by your fallibility, by your unbelief, by your failure, or your fragile nature. The story always comes out with Christ the victor, Christus victor. Christ has overcome all of his enemies. What's the greatest gift you've ever received? A white elephant, a nice diamond, a bowling alley or a bug medallion? Probably not. Friendship's a wonderful gift, but someone has given you more than friendship. Sometimes handmade gifts are the best because they truly come from the heart. But of all the gifts you've ever received, purchased, or handmade, the greatest gifts of all come from God. He is the giver of all good things. And today, the two gifts in John 16 are joy. Are you in sorrow this morning? Your sorrow will be turned to joy. And no one will be able to take your joy from you. You feel like you're a moment of weakness. You're fleeing from the Father. You're a disciple headed in the wrong direction like these disciples will be around the corner. Do you really believe in me? You'll have your day of denying me, Jesus says. But then after the resurrection, peace, peace I give you, he says elsewhere in this book. 14, not as the world gives unto you, let not your heart be troubled, and don't let your heart be afraid. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. The power of the empty tomb of Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, this morning, we acknowledge we're in difficult days. They're upon us again. And through the midst of the trials that we face individually, as families, as a culture, as a community, oh God, may we remember that you're the God of joy and you're the God of peace and all that's found in the power of your resurrection. And because you're the Lord that even defeats death, no one can rob us of the gifts of your joy and the gift of your peace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.